interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. So any questions that you would like to ask uh, right now? I've been thinking about the um, the issues that come into my mind as we uh, try to flourish the city that we're in. And um, it seems to me that sometimes it's easier to bring to the city what we know uh, from the scriptures we are to bring to the city. But it seems to me that the world is getting more and more confusing and the values that we have to sort through in order to know, are we flourishing the city or are we actually supporting something that we really shouldn't be doing yeah. to flourish the city? I have nieces and nephews, and their idea of flourishing the world that they're in is pretty antithetical to my idea of flourishing the city. I wonder if you could speak to sorting out some of those values as Christians and as uh, you know, fellow travelers on this earth. I have five really easy things to say to you. <laughs> I don't, and of course I won't. Um, I mentioned this Q gathering that is located in New York City now, but they put on a conference every year for 25-year-olds to 40-year-olds or so. That's kind of the demographic which mostly goes to it. About 700 people gathered together. They call it Ideas for the Common Good. Last year's was in Portland, and the morning was begun by Donald Miller, who's a writer who lives in Portland, and he called it Welcome to Portlandia. Uh, maybe that reference would make sense to you who watch some TV shows, Welcome to Portlandia. And Don Miller is a very gifted, thoughtful, very funny person, and he did a great job welcoming us to the city. But then I was asked to speak the next session on vocation is integral. And the organizer said to me, we want this to be the wedge through which everything else is driven here at the conference these next two and a half days. We want this idea of vocation being integral at the heart of all the things we're talking about, actually. That night, they had a panel conversation. And on the panel was the mayor of Portland and then Luis Palau's son, and then another, a pastor from Portland as well. I forget his name. And if you don't know much about Portland, most of us, of course, would have no reason to. But the Portland mayor is an openly homosexual man um, and uh, has been in trouble sort of of late in the press because of you know, charges against him for pedophilia and things like that. But he's been a politically popular mayor in Portland. And, and uh, he was there that night, and Luis Palau's son, and then this pastor. And the question which the Q organizers put between all of them was to the mayor of Portland, how do you look at the church here in Portland? What's the church like in Portland, Oregon? It's kind of a scary question to ask, isn't it? You know, Portland is sort of like, you know, green utopia city and, you know, ecotopia, you know, capital of the world in some ways. And, and here's the man who leads the city and he has made choices in his life that are in his own direction. And, you know, and he's asked the question, you know, what about Christians in the city, Mayor? What about the church in the city of Portland? What do you think about all this? What do they look like to you? No hiding away from a hard question, really. 
it was a re- impressive to me that they took that question on as they did so openly. Um, he actually had some good things to say about the way the church looked to him in Portland, of ways they were involved in the good of the city, and went on to tell about all that. And you could actually Google you know, something about this. Right? I saw something a few weeks ago about this, some news show, and it was you know, one of the big you know, ABC, CBS kind of a things that had a little show about the church in Portland, Oregon, actually, kind of surprising what was going on there. Um, you know, on the one hand, I mean, I feel deeply the question you're asking, and I realize that it's fraught with all sorts of turmoil for us and, you know, things we might get in trouble for and, you know, we might get hurt by, and, you know, and it's really hard to work out sometimes, and, and you can't do it by yourself, really. Um, uh, and churches shouldn't be political bodies and social organizing agencies. I don't believe that either, really. But somehow the church also needs to be a place where, in Newbigin's terms, we are the hermeneutic of the gospel. I love that ending to Newbigin's writings. The congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Uh, and so you know, it ought to be the vision. And in some ways, of course, it is by this very event this weekend. But these churches gathered together to say, we do care about this city and this world. We want to be better informed, more fully informed by our faith to take up our life in a pluralizing, secularizing world. Um, we could talk about particulars, but I do, I do feel your pain. Is that a fair response? Mm-hmm. All right. If you were, if you never mentioned your belief in Christ, won't that lead non-believers to think? that their atheistic or agnostic belief is justified. Mm -hmm. And I guess I believe we need to make our foundational belief known at the same time we work for the common good. Christ makes everything possible. Mm -hmm. Well, I would agree with that. You know, I think it's more a matter of time and place, I guess. Um, You know, that... You know, and I guess the only, you know, I, I think clearly, you know, over the course of time, if we think about Jesus doing his own teaching, I'm, you know, I've, my own PhD is in the philosophy of learning. And so I've really taken Jesus to be a, a pedagogue to me, uh, teaching me about learning. And this is something I think I've learned from him. Um, you know, characteristically, he would tell a story. And he would say at the end of the story, if you have ears to hear, then hear. And he would walk away. It was only if you walked back up and said, so Dave, what did you mean by that? That he would explain the story to them. Um, that isn't a, 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 you know, a mandate for all interactions in the world, for all conversations in the world. It's not that we have to always be just that way. But I think that's intriguing too. You know, it maybe is instructive for us too. Um, that if we're talking about the claims of Jesus for all of reality, which we confess together in this room to be true, I mean, I, my life is built on the bedrock of what Kuiper said. I mean, I believe that with all of my being. There's no square inch of the whole of reality over Jesus who alone is Lord does not declare that is mine. I, mean, I live my life for that. Really. I long for the kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why, why I live and how I live my life. But I, f- I think it's also possible, you know, to, um, to be the person who puts Les Miserables on Broadway, you know, and you could tell a story about a, a bishop who shows amazing grace to an out-of-prison, 
you know, vagrant who has no reason to be given any grace at all, and take these candlesticks too. You forgot them, really. And of course, as the musical puts it, I've bought your soul for God now. Now, people aren't typically going to see Les Miserables because they want to see the gospel one more night. You know? but it's a great story, a wonderfully well-told story. The music is just outstanding, really. But the story captures us maybe at our best, really. Um, you know, the story is not hiding God, um, but it's artfully, engagingly telling the story of God at work in the lives of human beings. If you listen to, you know, our dear friend Bono, who sometimes stumbles over himself, you know, uh, um, he would say about himself, the curse of my life is my celebrity. I've been in a room with him before, you know, and I was listening to the uproar outside. This was in the Hart Building of the U.S. Senate, and if you know that building at all, it's this big sort of open-air space with, you know, sculptures of mountains and clouds above you. And, I mean, he had to walk through this building with, you know, people just screaming his name out. I won't even assault you with what that might sound like here, but it was just like screaming his name. Like, how would you live your life? if you had to do it like that. <laughs> no. um, you might think for five minutes it would be kind of fun, but then, of course, it wouldn't be anymore, probably. Um, but, uh, you know, there are so- times in his music, of course, where he sings Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Um, uh, you know, if you got the, the Boston DVD of his concert from, you know, some years ago now, the Boston concert um, of a certain tour, you know, after it's a beautifully done DVD, it's just glorious. Where you could have, actually almost have a, you know, Sunday evening surface watching this sometime. Um, except he does say, at the F word, as he prays. Now, I don't do this because I'm defending him to you. As a, this is the model for all of us. I don't use that word in my life, uh, and I'm not blessing him that he does. And I've said to a lot of people, my father never taught me to pray using that word. Um, Maybe yours did, but mine didn't. <laughs> so here he is. The encore finally happens. They come clap back on stage. You know, they run out, and you know he's got you know his microphone, you know, like this, and he's beginning to move into the microphone in his own you know dramatic, you know, charismatic way, and he begins to pray. It's simply a prayer. You can actually in the DVD version, of course, you're right up like this. You can see the whole thing, and you can see him begin to pray. Oh, Father in heaven. Oh, Father in heaven, this is a effed up world it is. Now, we use the word broken or sinful or wounded or, you know. <laughs> um, he chooses another word to say the same thing, doesn't he? Really? Um, and then before it's all over, do you know what he does? You know, and you can actually see it and hear it on the concert, in the DVD telling of the, of the concert that night. He begins to sing, Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. Praise you, Jesus. Alleluia. Alleluia. Now, again, we're not all supposed to be Bono in this life. You know, that's not our vocations. That's not who we're called to be in this world. And I don't say this, tell the story to make it be like, you know, he does it perfectly and we don't do it as we ought to. I only am telling you this because, you know, I think in some ways, you know, he's found a way to live his life and to do his work um, that, you know, in some ways, the world at large says, that's interesting to me. That intrigues me, actually. I'd like to hear more from you. 
You know, it's almost, to put it here, it's almost Jesus-like. You know, if yours to hear, then hear. What did you say? What's this about? And so if you have the book, if you know the book called Conversations with Bono, it's this French journalist who writes him, who asks for two years interviews Bono. And it's a, a book of it, this long, long, two-year-long interview. And at a certain point, the interviewer says to him, what about this song called Grace? You say in the song, grace is different than karma. Well, why is it different than karma? What's karma about anyway? Why is Christ better than karma? You know, at this point, Bono is as good as C.S. Lewis, I would say. Um, it's, he actually draws on the, you know, the egg, you know, little story that Lewis does, you know. It's like a, you know, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. But he goes beyond that and he says this, that every religious vision in the world, apart from the gospel, is some form of karma. He says evolutionary materialism in the West is its own kind of karma, just as the pantheisms of the East are karma. Because they all, of course, require that the story is already told. It's already set. If E.O. Wilson at Harvard can write consilience and say, we are finally our DNA, first and last, DNA is it. Really. Nothing more, nothing less than our DNA. You see, that's not so far, though it's in Western determinism rather than Eastern mysticism. It's its own kind of, the universe is already set. No choice is left. Why did B.F. Skinner write beyond freedom and dignity? Well, because we are now, aren't we? Those are meaningless concepts now in the world we live in. Um, and so, you know, for Bono then to go on in this interview and say, well, you see, grace is different because, because grace actually transforms things. It's different. It actually can transform lives. It can change lives. Things aren't always have to be as they are. Well, I love Bono doing it, actually. Thank good for you, really, because um, that's exactly right. So sometimes he sings Yahweh and sometimes he sings praise Jesus and sometimes he stumbles over himself and prays with words I don't pray with. And um, you know, um, I don't think he's hiding himself and I'm not saying to you we should hide ourselves. I think it's more a matter of discernment about times and places and where we are and who we're with and, you know, and maybe sometimes even you know, telling about the lives we have and the work we do in a way which somebody says, tell me more about that, Randy. Why do you see the world that way? What is it you meant by that, really? And then, of course, with a question like that, you're able to walk your way into the most important things of life. Is that a good answer to the question? Yeah. Thank you.